Steve handed, gave me this. This is from, uh, I said there's 18 times, or I, I think I said 18, but was that 13 times? That the word, Jude uses words that are not in the New Testament. In other words, he uses his, you know, unique words. And so Steve went home and double-checked. <laughs> yeah, you're glad, you're glad Steve is here, all right? <laughs> and so uh, I thought it was pretty cool. Because, and so you'll see some of these words. Well, that first word, the first word there, uh, to contend earnestly, comes up today. And so that'll be one of the words that appears nowhere else in the New Testament except in Jude's writing. Um, so, and again, this is a, a very uh, excellent book, well-written. I uh, use like, you know, several words that Paul never used, Peter never used, Luke never used, John never used. Jude uses them to express his thoughts. Uh, and a lot of times we, we like to fall back on the concept that uh, the people of the first century, especially the Jews, especially the Jews in Galilee were illiterate, a bunch of illiterate fishermen. They, you know, they didn't know, they didn't study, they probably couldn't even read, uh, which kind of cuts us some slack. You know, heck, all we got to do is just, you know, be a Christian and we don't have to be, you know, know anything, you know. Uh, And as we get into it, we find out, you know, first of all, Paul was a very trained, uh, skilled rabbi. Luke was a doctor who wrote, you know, very well, excellent Greek. These people spoke several languages. And this week, uh, something that came up as uh, in archaeology, and I, I shared it on Facebook, which, you know, that doesn't mean a lot, but I did. Uh, in uh, 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 the, the Bethsaida, it's a Gesher. This is where this is at right here, Gesher, the city of Gesher. The, uh, this is the, one of the stones of Hadad, the god, when the Syrians came down and took over Gesher. It's on the northeast coast of the Sea of Galilee. It's a fishing city. Uh, they're excavating a, a fisherman's house. There they found the hooks and the weights and all the things. But they also found an inkwell and a pen, meaning the people in here were not just fishermen uh, living on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. They, were, they, they wrote, which is like, okay, you know, oh, wow, people write. But it's like it, it kind of comes against that idea that Peter and John, these guys are all illiterate. Uh, which really, sometimes the, the, we talk about the book of Jude, how well it's written. Uh, it's like, is this really written by Jude? Could it, because it's written in a, a Greek style. And it kind of gives us the impression that these guys were interacting with several different cultures, several different languages, uh, being able to speak and communicate. And so uh, they would have, you know, have this kind of a skill. And so, again, going back to the words that Jude pulls out that are excellent words that no one else had used as he continues to communicate. Anyway, we are in Jude. Uh, we're going to begin the book today, go through chapter 1 through 4. won't get a lot into chapter 4. Or, or excuse me, excuse me. Oh. Now, two things I'm going to have a problem with. I'm going to say chapters, and I'm also going to say James consistently because we just finished the book of James. Jude's James' brother. So if I ever say James, you go, I thought we were talking about Jude. We're talking about Jude. I'm just not, everything's not firing correctly here. So I'm going to go to the book of Jude in the NIV. The English Standard is on your notes. We'll look at that in a moment. And uh, just read uh, the first few verses. I think last two times we've been here, uh, we've read the whole book. Uh, now, we won't have class next week. Uh, we're going to be telling I'll be gone for a little anniversary getaway. Uh, so we won't have class next Sunday, next Monday, next Tuesday. We will have class today, obviously, tomorrow Monday, and tomorrow or Tuesday in two days. 
Uh, here we go, Jude chapter 1. It begins just like, and I'll address this in the, in the notes also, just like a, a Greek, Roman Greek letter, an, an ancient epistle of this time. The name of the writer was some identification, the recipients was some identification, and then a prayer or a blessing of some sort. What's interesting about the recipients, now as a Bible teacher, and we've, you, know, I've, you can see it during when I do in the introduction, who are these people receiving this letter are they Jews? Are they Gentiles? What city? What country are they from? Is this a circular circular letter going to several? Who are these people? A Jew doesn't tell us. He he identifies them as those who've been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. Okay, so he identifies them on their identification as Christians instead of uh, the Church of Jerusalem or the Church of Antioch or the the Jews scattered around Bithynia, you know, like Peter, is he identifies them there. So that, that is a clear identification. It's just not the identification I would want. I would like to know what city are we talking about. And again, they obviously knew because they were living in that city. Anyway, here he goes. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, and a brother of James. So that's his identification. To those, he's writing to these people, who have been called, who are loved by God the Father, and kept by Jesus Christ. All important words. Then here's the prayer or the blessing that always would come, you know, like, may you be in good health. I hope I find, all right, this letter finds you and your family prospering and doing well. He says, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Now, with Paul, that word, you'd hear the word, what would be in there? The word grace would be in there. Grace to those. And when we look at this, those words, it doesn't say grace, but mercy, peace, and love are almost like the subcategories under grace. So, I mean, it, it's, it's very similar. Uh, and again, we'll talk about that. So that, that's who's writing, who's receiving the blessing. Now here, the next two verses are the subject of the letter. And then in verse 5, he begins to get into the meat of the letter, the conflict. But here it is, verse 3, Dear friends, Although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. So again, he's writing to the saints. Dear friends, the saints, I'm writing to you, the saints. I want to write about our salvation, but instead of writing about how great a salvation we've got, I've got to tell you, you've got to protect the foundation of our salvation because we've got this great salvation, but it's being chipped away at the very bottom, the very core doctrines are being chipped away you got to protect this it's not that we shouldn't expand and learn uh and grow in this faith it's you've got to protect it otherwise you're not going to have anything you're not going to know what the faith is so that is who he's writing to and who are they contending he says uh and again we'll mention all these things later i i felt i had a right to you and urge you to contend and that would mean you're going to have an opposition. It's, it's, a, it's an athletic term. It's a debate term. You're contending against somebody. Who are you resisting? So it's the saints. You need to resist against somebody. Well, who is it? Well, it begins in verse 4. For certain men, this is who you're, these certain men that are going to be identified throughout the book, you are contending against these people. This is our opponent, if you want to call them the enemy, you want to call them the other team, you want to call them the opposition. These are the ones that are chipping away at the faith that if you let them chip away, 
we're not going to be able to talk about the great salvation we share because you're going to have lost the great salvation being some kind of secular group or human society or some religious organization has nothing to do with the truth of the word of god so you've got to contend against these men these certain men and then he gives you some identity uh, and we won't get into this verse we'll get it next week uh, identifies them for certain men and here here's begins the description whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you so they are in the they're not in some university somewhere teaching some secular education they're in the church they're in the church teaching you and they secretly slipped in among you they are godless men who change the grace of our god into a license for immorality and deny jesus christ our only sovereign and lord so there are some uh, identifications that you can see about those certain men. We'll talk about that. So now you know who they're contending against. So you, the f- purpose of the letter is I want to talk about the great salvation. We should like Paul, when he writes Colossians or he writes Ephesians, he takes, we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ, but then he begins to kind of like peel back the layers or the tree begins to grow or the flowers begin to blossom. It's like, oh, it means this and it means this. It's like we begin to understand. We're not just, we are saved from our sins, but we're saved into christ which means we're being conformed into his image we're being prepared for eternity and there's a whole future for us of this great so say well i i i'm saved i'm not going to hell i get to go to heaven okay you're saved but let's explore this great salvation you've just entered into it's it's more than just okay i don't have to go to hell it's like you're in the family of god you're being conformed into the image of jesus christ it's like and that's what james wants to talk about we have this great salvation but it's like what you've got people teaching that it just gives us a permission to go right back into the world and, and continue sinning. We've got to contend with this, otherwise we're going to lose an understanding of this salvation. So there's, that's the battlegrounds. And of course, in verse 5, he begins now uh, going through the, his, his teaching. And again, page 1 of the notes, at the top it says, there are 25 total verses. So you'd think we'd be able to fly through this book you know, fairly quickly. Uh, which I'm sure we'll do, uh, since I'm retired and I've got all day to study. <laughs> you probably stretch this out into a two-year project. It's like, uh, isn't that sad? You know, Jude can write his whole letter in 25 verses. I might not be able to cover it in 25 weeks, but okay. Anyway, uh, there's 25 total verses in this book, and it, it, the first thing there I mentioned already, the Greek-style letter that's being used uh, the writer, the recipients, the opening prayer, and then verses 3 and 4, the overall cause and purpose of the letter, and then verse 5, he begins it. And here we have, uh, I broke verse 1 into two parts, because it, it includes Jude, the writer, and then the, the people he's sending it to, and it, so you got Jude 1a, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, and right underneath there you can see the Greek, and you see there's two parts to it, because it also then goes on and talks about to those in God the Father, and, and we'll talk about that next. Uh, this idea of, of Jude being a servant. Again, I don't want to you know, override you know, common sense. Uh, servant of Jesus Christ. Uh, this is the word doulos in the Greek, uh, which means basically slave. And, and, and you judge me as I say this, because when you first read through this, uh, and I've, I've done it before, is servant, it's a very humble thing, a very humble uh, approach. He's, a, he's humble, I'm just a slave of Jesus Christ. You know, don't, don't pay any attention to me. I'm just here, just a slave of Jesus Christ. 
That, that's one way of looking. And, and many commentators talk or right down that line. It's a very humble beginning. You know, just, I'm just Jude. I'm just Jude, a, a mere slave of Jesus Christ. You're the saved. I'm a mere slave. Except it, it, we back up and look at this again. I go, go ahead right there. We can say Jude is being very humble in this beginning of the letter. I'm just a slave of Jesus Christ. I'm really nobody. Uh, that's our definition of a slave. You know, a slave is just they, they, I don't know, they live out back, you know, or they're, they get the leftover food. I'm not sure. I never had a slave before. Uh, but this right here, if we put this in the context of, of the culture and of the Bible, the, the, the literature of the Bible, uh, we, I start with this right here. Recognize Nehemiah. We're doing Nehemiah on Tuesday nights. Nehemiah was the cupbearer uh, for Artaxerxes. And as we read through that first chapter, you know, he goes through, he, he prays to God about showing his favor because he's going to go to this man. He wants to do these things. And he says, I just need, I just need uh, favor from, from this man. He says, and I was the cupbearer for the king, which means, oh, oh, he was just one of the, the waiters there in the palace. And it's like, oh, so he'd come in. But you understand, the cupbearer, you go back and again, now we're in the book of Nehemiah, you go back and you read uh, writers like Herodotus and other ancient writers talk about the cupbearer. The cupbearer was in many cases uh, the right-hand man. He was the one that would, you know, not only would he taste all the wines before they came to the king, you know, he'd be the one that kind of planned the meals. And then we're going to have this kind of a, this, you know, like a chef. We're going to have this meal here. And then Nehemiah would have to pick the wine, taste the wines. Okay, we'll serve this wine. Artaxerxes never got any bad wine. If it was bad, it went through Nehemiah first, and he got rid of it and brought the good wine in. He'd schedule the meetings. He'd schedule, yeah, the meetings. If you wanted to meet with the king, you'd have to go through his chief of staff, which is Nehemiah. He was the servant, the cupbearer, the mere cupbearer, but... When the doors closed, and we see the book of Nehemiah chapter 2, the doors closed, Nehemiah standing there in front of the king and the queen mother sitting on the throne, and he's talking to him about, the king says, why do you look so sad? I mean, when's the last time you see your waiter come by and go, hey, uh, looks like you're having a, ba- a bad day. What's, what's bothering you? And I mean, maybe you do. Maybe you're like real friendly and stuff. Uh, but you know, you, you, have, you have a whole conversation with your waiter about their life and their desires, and they say, well, you know what? Why don't you take 12 years off and let me just write you a couple checks here. Here's my signet ring. Uh, you just go ahead. What? You just be the governor of Judea and then come back in 12 years. Okay, here. Thanks, Nehemiah. Hey, have a nice day. And he's having this conversation and he's just the cupbearer. It's like, you know, he walked out of there with signet rings and financial reports and, and, and letters of, of passage with a military escort. So this is not when he's, oh, I'm just a servant of Artaxerxes. It's like, Hold the higher up in this culture, this idea, the higher up your master goes, the higher up the servant or the slave goes when they go out into the community to execute the will of the, uh, the master. Now, for example, you think about someone who is a, I don't even have a chief of staff. Let's just say I had someone that was, the uh, closest thing I've got is Tony, uh, yeah, that's probably a bad example in our culture. It's like, oh my goodness, people are shutting off the live stream right now. Um, 
it goes both ways. It goes both ways. Uh, but, you know, if, if she goes out or if I, I had some kind of a servant, chief of staff, they'd go out, they would be executing my will. They'd be, what would they be doing for me? I mean, mowing my grass, not the whole neighborhood. They'd mow my yard or they'd take care of my finances. You know, what, you know yeah, that's not a real big challenge. Uh, you know, they buy my groceries, which is, you know, once a week, you know. And they'd have this, it's like they go out, oh, the servant of Galen is here and he's here to execute Galen's wishes galen's desires and it's like well that wouldn't shock, shock anybody because it's not that big a deal but if someone if the servant of now think of someone elite uh maybe you know the president uh or the former president whichever side you want to go on i mean that's like well, that's a hot pick one of them and they're here to execute they're just i'm just a slave of this president or the slave of this king it's like what are you here for i'm here to buy and negotiate they've got all the the king's not going to show up the president's not going to show up who's going to take care of this business the servant is going to take care of the business jesus christ is not going to drop in on these churches okay he does in revelation but he doesn't who's he do he, he does it through john the apostle writes the seven letters and john is called what the servant of Jesus Christ. He says, I'm a servant. I'm a fellow servant of Jesus Christ. And he's the one who communicates the king's will. So with that impression here, when Jude says servant of Jesus Christ, think of Nehemiah, servant of Artaxerxes, or someone today, servant or slave of the president. I'm here to purchase, set up, or organize, and speak for the president. So I wrote these things down right here. Um, you can see uh, point A, Jude could have claimed to have been the brother of Jesus, and that would be appropriate because in Galatians 1.19, uh, Paul identifies James was known as the brother of, of Jesus. And he says right here, I saw none of the other apostles, Paul writes, except James, the Lord's brother. So Paul, writing to the Galatians, identifies James as, not Jude's brother, but the brother of the Lord. So Jude and James would have been known as the brother of the Lord. Jude chooses, some say, to humble it, say, oh, I don't want to say I'm the brother of the Lord. He just, oh, I'm the servant of the Lord, which again is, you know, a, a position of service. But he almost ups it, because he's going to say brother of James, and he's going to, I think, going to be saying brother of James, claiming some kind of authority. We'll talk about that. But also when he says servant of Jesus Christ, he's, I'm not just the brother of Jesus. I'm his, I'm, I'm his slave. He's my master. I'm here doing the king's business. So he's not writing. Think about the letter he's writing. We've read it a couple times. He's not writing this humble, you know, it's really none of my business, but I would suggest maybe double-checking some of these guys that are teaching. They're not, their doctrine is really not leading to the best behavior you know, I'm, I'm just here wiping off the tables. I have just, I'm just cleaning up the mess after everybody gets done eating. But if you want my honest, humble opinion, that's not how he's writing. He's writing as the servant of the Lord or the slave of the master. And uh, we've got to clean some things up. He's, I wanted to write about this, but I've got to do the king's work. And this letter's coming down, I think, with some serious authority. For example, uh, uh, pro point C, probably the identification of himself as a servant of Jesus Christ as, Jude claim of as Jude's claim of authority. It does not signify humility. Jude does not write as a humble person who feels the assignment to address the readers and the issues is above him. Uh, but Jude does write with an authority, as an authoritative speaker. 
you can read it, who has, has keen insight and a sharp opinion that divides the right from the wrong. He's drawing a clear line right here. This is right. This is wrong. I mean, it's not like, well, it's not, not, not for me to decide. He's telling you the way it is. Uh, the obedient from the apostate, and the, you, he uses scriptural and historical examples to communicate his warnings, which he is fully convinced are his master, Jesus Christ opinion this is i'm he's he's sharing what jesus christ what god the father what they think i mean it's almost like he's stepping into inspiration i think he's using servant of jesus christ the way paul would use uh apostle an apostle sent by jesus christ jude is saying a servant sent by jesus christ with authority um i write this on point two there the Old and New Testament have examples of servants of God or slaves of God who were fully given authority of the Lord and had managerial responsibility to act on behalf of their master, the Lord. In society, the higher the social standing of the master, the more authority and responsibility the master's slave held. In that society, when the slave acted on behalf of the master and the mission, the slave was sent, uh, uh, sent or the slave that was sent would be equal to an apostle. Standing behind the words, that there's the example of Judea. Now, at the bottom of the page, here's some people that were servants or slaves of God in the Old Testament. Moses. <laughs> I mean, it was like this humble servant. Moses, like, basically ran the show. Moses' word was the end of the line. Uh, following him, Joshua. Then the prophets. I've got examples there. You have a Bible verse. We go through that. The prophets. When the prophets, Jeremiah or Amos listed there, when they spoke as servants of God, what were they doing? They're not offering their humble opinion. They're speaking the very words of God. God's not going to come talk to you, but I've been sent in his place would be Jeremiah's or Amos's place. Paul does the same thing. Paul, James, and Peter all say the same thing, calling themselves servants of God. And I think we, again, you don't have to, you say, well, these guys are all just being humble. Yes, I think these guys are humble, but they also realize their responsibility that I've got to communicate this or I fail to do my job as the slave of the master who sent me to communicate. Um, The point three then, Jude also identifies himself as the brother of James and that also has a stamp of authority because we just got done reading and studying the book of James and James begins his letter by simply saying, James. Uh, he, it's like, who are you, James? And that was enough. Everyone knows who James was. He doesn't need to identify his father, doesn't need to identify his brother. He just identifies himself as James and everyone knows who he is because he had authority in the Jerusalem church. Um, and so... This is also a stamp of authority and another reason to take this letter serious if you are a reader or a hearer, if you're listening to the church, around 55 to 60 A.D. Again, we think that's about the time the letter was written, 55 to 60 A.D. James was the leader of the church of Jerusalem and Jude is his brother. So not only is he coming as a slave for the master Jesus Christ to communicate, I'm also uh, the brother of James who is, in a sense, number one. He's the bishop of the Jerusalem church, authority over all the churches that have uh, gone out from there, especially in the Jewish realm. Uh, Paul went and checked with James. Paul went and visited with James and checked his doctrine before he began going off to the Gentiles. He just made sure I'm on the base, made sure he learned all the traditions, and then he went off on his ministry. Uh, James brings, brings money, or Paul brings money from the Gentile churches to James in the book of Acts to be distributed. And now Jude says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, 
and I'm writing to you, which again, I think is a huge statement of authority in that first line, Jude is claiming a, a place of leadership and authority. Uh, and point four, I'll read this. Jude is not saying to the spiritual rebels and those who are being taught by the false teachers who denied Jesus Christ, he is not saying, for example, please listen to me, a humble servant of God. Instead, this is me paraphrasing. Instead, Jude is saying, I am speaking with the authority of Jesus Christ and with the support of the highest level of church authority, James, this is the final warning. If you continue to be influenced by the false teachers and the apostate leaders, your destruction is as certain as theirs and those who have been disobedient previously in the Old Testament. That's how he's writing. Now, oh, this is my humble opinion. This is it. From Jesus Christ, from James, my brother, this is the last warning. You're going to end up just like all these people in the Old Testament in destruction. And, and he just shoots it off like that. So I think that would be the way I would be approaching this letter uh, that he is taking his position very seriously, writing from a very serious position, and expecting uh, one of two things to happen. You join with him and start contending for the faith and, and succeed, or you continue to follow the false teachers and you go your destruction. It's, it's, and it's not a matter of his opinion. This is the fact. These are your options. Now, who is he writing to? And again, like I said, I would like to see uh, a name of a city, a name of a church, something. But instead, he identifies that, page 2, 1b, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Now, if you look in the Greek right above, uh, the, go back to the first page, the second part of the Greek text, you can just see the order there. To those in God the Father, having been loved, so it, it begins, who are they? In the Greek, it begins, those who are in God, loved by the Father. And then the next part, it says, and in Jesus Christ, having been kept. There's the word kept by Jesus. We can say Jesus Christ. And then the last word is in the Greek, you see, called. Now, as we know, uh, we mentioned this last week, there's many triads where James, whenever he talks, he, he just throws down three examples or gives you three definitions, uh, descriptions of some, some fact. It, it's like it makes it complete. And here you've got a, a triad. And in a sense, you've got three triads in three if you'll allow me to do this, in parentheses. Holy Spirit. And that's not what it says, but it'd make a nice triad. There are three things, and they're all passive, being done to the believer by the deity. Uh, they're loved by the Father, kept by Jesus Christ, and then called. So those are definitely one, two, three. There's your triad. You may have a triad of the, of the Trinity. You definitely have the Father and the Son, Who's doing the calling? It doesn't say. You don't have to accept it. But the Holy Spirit would be uh, an appropriate uh, fill-in-the-blank response. And then you've got a sequence of events. You've got timing. You've got past. They're going to be called in the past. And because they're called, they're going to be, well, uh, yes, present right here. Present is they are loved. And they're kept obviously in the present also, but they're being kept for the future. 
And this is very encouraging, in the tr- again, for us also. I mean, we're, we're in troubled times. Everybody, every age has troubled times. And we can see our troubled times. These people are living in troubled times. Uh, and, what, and this is a contrast that I, I don't have, and again, the older I get, the more I'm willing to just lay it down. I, I don't understand it. it. It's a mystery. Uh, but there's that contrast of you're, so, you're secure. You're called, you're loved, and you're kept for the future. You're good to go. And then the rest of the book is, look out, look out, be careful, you're all going to be destroyed. It's like, what? It's like, we're totally secure. Nothing to worry about here. Let's talk about our great salvation. But I can't. We're all going to die. We're all going to die. It's like, what, what, are you, what are you talking about? Again, I overemphasize, overestimate, <laughs> probably threw the breakers on the speakers up there. Um, but this whole book is telling the people to be careful. Don't follow these false teachers, otherwise you will be destroyed. Some, they, came out of, they came out of Egypt with Moses just to perish in the wilderness. You've come out of the world, out of sin. You've been saved by Jesus Christ just to perish. It's like, so are, you, are they going to lose their salvation? What's the danger here? Uh, again, he's talking about contending for the faith, you know, to, to continue into the next generation and all of that. But again, this is very, very, okay, let me just say it this way. This makes you want to be a Calvinist, you know, right here. I mean, you're, you're called from the past, you're loved by God, and you're kept. I mean, before you're born, you're called, you're loved now, and you're being kept, you can't lose it. It's like, there it is. I mean, there's a few things I would argue with. But I mean, that's why it looks pretty secure. But then you turn it around, and it's like he's putting all the pressure, in a sense, on them. You've got to contend. You've got to keep the faith. You've got to pray. Uh, otherwise, you could lose all this. So again, I, I don't think you can lose your salvation, but because that's why they call me a, a quasi-Calvinist, which I'm not. But uh, I guess I am. I don't know what I am. But uh, you, you see that contrast right there. Is, and throughout the book, there's this personal responsibility, but he addresses them as, okay, you're okay. You're, you're okay. You're just in the middle of a battle. It, it's, and the word contend that we're going to look at is a word for like a wrestling match. You're, you're in a wrestling match contending uh, against the, the adversary. You're going to be fine. But you've got to engage in this battle. And that's where it's like, for, uh, it's like well, we're going to be fine. I'll just stand out there and let them do what they want to. They can't beat me because I'm going to be fine. It's like, no, no, you've got to start contending. Why? I'm fine. So there's, see, I, I, I feel that contrast. And again, I think maybe someone with a higher intellect maybe would understand it. Uh, but that's right. But again, you see the three triads, loved, kept, and called, past, present, future. And you definitely have God the Father, God the Son, and possibly the Holy Spirit here doing these things. So that's, that's very interesting. And that's, that's, that's who he's writing to. I mean, I want to say he's writing to the Corinthians, or he's writing to the, the Jewish believers in Syria. Uh, we don't know. I mean, you can, I can kind of give you a, a guess. But this is who he, he addresses to those that are loved by the Father, kept by Jesus Christ, because they've been called. And so here we go. I'm on page two of the notes. And halfway down, Jude 1b, to those. Now, here's the English Standard translation. You saw it in the Greek. It went loved, kept, and called. Here's how the English Standard puts it in order. And again, to those who are called, beloved of God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And that is a, that's a discussion. 
is that should the Greek word be kept for Jesus Christ or kept by Jesus Christ? Again, that's, 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 a, that's, a, that's a, an academic linguistic conversation, what should go there, but you're free to think about it. Is kept for Jesus Christ? Well, and who's keeping you? Uh, but you are, in a sense, you know, you are the bride of Christ. You're being kept for Jesus. But it's possible that Jesus is doing the work because it's passive. Someone is doing this work for you or to you. You're being kept. And Jesus says, you know, anyone the Father has given me, the Father has given them, I will not lose. So Jesus is, both of them are correct theologically. But it's just interesting to see right there. And there's point one. I've got the three triads, past, present, future, Holy Spirit, God the Father, Jesus Christ, called, beloved, and kept. Now here goes the breakdown of these words. I'm going to do called first. And this is, again, these are simple words. We could just be done with this, okay? But this word right here, called, has, again, a history uh, going back into the Old Testament. Uh, It even has a... uh, even in the pagan world, I'm getting, I've got it written down there, uh, one example would be uh, if, if worshipers that go to worship in the Temple of Isis, you just can't show up at the Temple of Isis in this particular example, is only those that she's chosen to come worship. And how you know you've been chosen is through a dream. You'd have a dream about Isis, and then you'd be, she's calling you to come worship in her temple. So even in the pagan world, you'd be called by the deity. You couldn't just go, and you, I choose God. No, no, no. Has God spoken to you? Well, I haven't had a dream yet. Oh, I did. I, Isis appeared to me. Well, come on in. You've been called by Isis. Now, again, that's a pagan illustration, but that's the same word was used. And in this case right here, Jude is telling them, you've been called. The very fact you're hearing the gospel is God is calling. He, he may not appear to you in a dream. He may not speak out of heaven, but are you hearing the offer of the gospel? Consider yourself called by God. And again, now again, now that pushes back, everyone is called, and now we've got to have a response. And so that, that gets into the, the conversation. Anyway, called, uh, kletos, it, it means called. It's used to say called. Ah, invited is important. Or summoned by God to an office or to salvation. Uh, for the apostle Paul, say, I was called to be an apostle. Uh, or you be called for salvation. And that plays into point A is what I just said about ISIS. Uh, point B, the word invited, being invited to dinners. You know, when you have a dinner, you, they would invite certain guests or they'd send out certain tickets or a certain class of people would be called. Even in the New Testament, the same images, you're having a meal, there's certain invitations that are involved. And this invitation, this called, and I'm going to put up here, invite is uh, the same thing that Jesus used, and I've got the listed here. I'd like to read to you, but I'm going to, for the sake of time, not just assume you recognize it. Point C, Jesus used this image of inviting people to a, the banquet in the kingdom of God in Luke and Matthew, Luke 14, Matthew 22. And you can remember those stories is there was people that were invited, but even in those, those parables, they're being invited. Clearly, they're being invited to the banquet of God, the eschatological end time, the kingdom of God that he's got prepared. And then later on, and he talks in, in Matthew 25, you know, the welcome to those, uh, to, you may enter the banquet prepared for you from the foundation of the earth. Some of them, the goats didn't get to come in, but the lambs, uh, they, they got to come in or the sheep got to come in. Uh, but even in that parable, if we go back and read it, you can see everyone's being invited. In that, that case, the Jewish nation was called, invited, and they were busy. 
They were busy. They go back and say, they won't come. They got stuff to do. So the master says, well, go out the highways and the byways. Just go out, just go out in the, go in the high V parking lot. Just start telling, I got all this food prepared. I got a whole, just start telling people where they, just give, hand out these flyers. Let's, let's fill this house up. So they went out and, and invited everybody. This, the original guests were like, mm, not interested. Well, someone's got to come. But even then, you could see there was this invite, but there was this option of, see, that's where, uh, that kind of runs in the face of Calvin. Now, Calvinists would be able to say, ah, well, that ex- they could explain it. But right here, this invite, it seems like passively divine and just called. But in all those parables, they're called, invited, and some go, mm, not going to show up. Were you called? Yeah, but I'm not going to go. So it gives the impression a lot more are invited than are going to show up. That's the word right here that we're seeing. That's, that's point C. And this builds on, and I hope I don't mess this up or bore you with this, the servant songs in Isaiah. And you get into the second half of Isaiah. The first half of Isaiah, and some people even say there's two Isaiahs. The first Isaiah, then someone else came and wrote more under his name later. Uh, I don't agree with that. I think because Jesus, for the simple defense would be Jesus quoted from the book of Isaiah, says Isaiah wrote. And then Jesus quotes from the second half of Isaiah and says Isaiah wrote. And so he gives credit to both as being of the prophet Isaiah. Again, there's other ways of doing it. You can have two styles of books. You got early his, his ministry during the Assyrian empire and then his ministry of encouraging the people <coughs> of the coming messiah so it, it's not that big of a contrast if people want to disprove and discredit the bible they'll go with that but some people say there's two isaiahs anyway in the second half of isaiah there's the servant songs of isaiah where he's calling the people or identifying the call of israel and you can hear the word servants in there uh, and you can hear the word called and what takes place here this is in the old testament the people that were called were Israel, were called, and they had a purpose. Now again, once, once again, Israel, not all of them responded. Many of them went astray. And so Jesus comes in the New Testament, the Gospels, and actually comes to the Jews, as you know, who in, in a, in, as a nation rejected him, just like Daniel says, he'll, the, the, the Messiah will come and be cut off and receive nothing. He came for the kingdom, came to his people. They say, nah and he won't get anything. Well, then now, in the New Testament, this called, this group becomes the church. And now notice what we're saying right here. Don't, don't let me railroad this anywhere. The church is a group, just like Israel is a group. Some people in Israel, the group that was called the seed of Abraham, responded. Some seed of Abraham says, and went away. The church, that's the body of Christ, you can be called and join, or you can be called and this would be the group that is called. That's how you can weasel around having everybody, you know, be forced in or forced out. But that's another conversation. Nonetheless, what's taking place here, he's not, I do think he's talking to, as we did this introduction, I do think he's talking, Jude is writing to Jewish Christians or Jewish believers. But the idea here is they are believers in Jesus Christ and they are saved because of faith in Christ, not saved because they're Jewish. Which obviously was John the Baptist's point, Jesus' point, Paul's point, the whole idea here. And so now if these, if these Jews, they're no longer saved because they're in Israel, they're saved because they accepted the Messiah, they are now in the church, and the church now is the called, and they're going to now get this purpose 
of being God's people, of representing God on the earth. And in this case right here, part of the representation right now is going to be contend for the, the gospel, contend for the faith. Don't let it get wiped away by these people that are rejecting it. So here is some verses from Isaiah, the servant songs of Isaiah. That's a big topic, uh, but here it is. This is just the word called being used. Not my point, because this is what the people, when they hear you've been called, this is what they would have understood. Just like Isaiah is talking to the Jews and you've been called, this is God comforting them with the calling. Here it is. Isaiah 42, verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Now, do you hear how similar that sounds? You see, called is in there. Uh, I'll take you by the hand and, and I will keep you. I, I will give you a covenant. And there's your, your three words right there. Because you've got called. You've got keep or kept and and where's love the word love would be covenant it's it's in the old testament the hasid the word that's translated love in the old testament is covenant love it's not love like an emotional love you know like god cares i'm so emotionally connected he's got this covenant and so they have they've been called they've been kept because they have a covenant god is going to honor you with the covenant you can trust this covenant and the same thing we can trust the covenant it's not that jesus is emotionally connected to us i mean that that's so 1960s beatles type love you know it's like do you love me yeah 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 whatever it's like this is a covenant. I, I, I have chosen you. I've called you. I've brought you into my covenant of love. I will protect you. Why? Because I've got a contract with you. I've got a deal with you. I've signed the contract. And so you are mine and, and I'm yours. We're going to stay together with this. And that is what is being said, well, right here. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you a covenant for the people, a light to the nations. In other words, I've got a covenant for you. And that is the word Hasid, or come, builds on the word Hasid and, and, and love. For four, three, verse one. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, I ha- for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. Uh, 45, verses three through four. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. So all this is taking place before they even know God. And this is, when, the, when Jude used the word called, this in the Jewish mind, they're, they're, these are the verses they, they'd be familiar with. They would know this. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called, I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. Uh, Again, these are all words of comfort and strength. I've called you, you are mine. I'm the first and the last. There's nothing for you to worry about. You're secure. 49 verse 1, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. That'd be the Gentiles. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. Now, that would be the Gentiles. That is, now we're getting into the suffering servant, the servant songs. And now the suffering servant is going to have to do the work for all the other servants to redeem them. And again, 
51 verse 2. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you, for he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. And then point E, the church has now become the called of God. You can see that in Romans, Galatians, first all the way through the New Testament. So James is referring to this right here, called. And this would go back to a previous uh, past in the plans of God, God has called. Now, it was Tuesday night, or Monday night, that I did that little time thing, wasn't it? With the, the, the spectrum like right here. Uh, what comes first? Uh, knowledge or fact okay are you ready for this okay this this is philosophical and you've got a shop teacher explaining it so this could okay what what happens first fact or knowledge what 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 is real first does a an event take place and then because that event took place i can know the information about that or do you know something and because you know it it happens what comes first in this sequence this is eternity where there's no time this is the temporal where we live in time this is god and this is everything he created Understanding that God doesn't exist alongside of time. God doesn't exist alongside of matter. God doesn't exist alongside of creation. There is God and nothing else. There's no time. There's no matter. There, there's nothing. There's, there's, it's like, yeah, but there's, there's God. He is eternal. Once he created, now you're going to have things like time, matter, angels. See, angels aren't up here. Angels are below. They're in the created world. Everything, everything. Uh, and you say, well, time, that's like eternal. It's like, no, Einstein proved time was part of the physical realm. Because time, uh, you, can, you can speed time up or slow time down depending on the speed of light, depending on gravity, depending on all these things. Then you've got people, you've got earth, you've got all creation. Do you understand this? Okay? Are you with me on that? Okay. And that, that answers, and again, I don't want to bore you, but that answers the question I asked my grandpa in 1967, and the question Olivia and Tyler answer, asked me on the way home from the pool earlier this summer. Because they're back there doing little their little elementary school chit chat it's like just like sometimes it's like oh aren't they cute i was like Ugh. it's like good night just stop it's like and then they're laughing at stuff it's like that's not even funny that's that's it's like oh just get these kids to the pool anyway but i do it every day i take them to the pool and we have fun but anyway every once in a while there you go yeah that doesn't make sense yeah how could god always exist because you know, God can't always exist. Who created God? Thinking they're being real profound. Who created God? And it's like, okay, on this side of the line, that makes sense. Because on this side of the line, you can't think of anything that didn't have a beginning and is going to have an end. I remember thinking that. Oh, my gosh, I'm way off subject. 
I remember thinking of that when I was probably seven years old. Now this, you'll be like, oh, Galen Wonder, Galen's like a borderline genius. Uh, but I was laying in bed one night, I may, I've told you this before, so I'm laying in bed one night on Highway 71 in, uh, in, in Auburn, Iowa, in our little ranch house on Highway 71. You go right on through town, the, the truck went right past us, that was where all the bypasses. And I'm laying in my bed there, mom and dad are out watching Johnny Carson or that par guy who ever came on before him. I don't remember if Johnny Carson was on 67 or not. And also I'm laying there thinking about time. And I realized that, you know, everything dies. Yeah. I'm everything. <laughs> I'm part of it. And it's like, I'm going to die. It was like, all of a sudden, it's like, and I ran out of my room, just in the hallway, and right now there's like a little ranch out. Ran the living room, it's like, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. Mom and dad like, what? <laughs> it's like, what's happening? But I came to the realization, right? I realized, and again, it's, I'm not trying to, like, I'm genius. And, but it's like, I, I realized that it's like, I'm on this side of the line. That it's like, holy smokes, I'm, I'm going to die. Okay, I realized I was not eternal. And that we're stuck in here. Okay. The answer to the question, I asked my grandpa and then my Olivia and Tyler, and it, it's, it's really, oh, what a profound question. It's really, again, it's really a stupid question. Because it's like, that's not that brilliant. God lives on this side of that line. Time is something God created. So when God stops time, destroys everything, he's still there. That question only is a question in this realm. How did mountains form? Where do people come from? Where does a tree come from? Well, when did, a, when did the earth begin? Those are all real questions, and we've got, sometimes we've got solid answers, sometimes we're still trying to figure something, but it's like there's an answer to every one of those questions because it had to have a beginning, and it's going to have an end because it's in time. It's a sequence. But how can God always be? Because God's not here. God is here. He crea- he's the cause of all this. So all of a sudden, it's a great, again, it's a great question. It means you're thinking, but there's really, it's like, there's your answer. He always exists because he's the one who created time. And when he stops time, he's, still, he's not in time. So it's not a question. Okay. I, I got two ohs in the back. I on the way home. I'm driving in there. I'm spanging in the mirror. And I was like, oh. So it's like, now that'll last for like, you know, three days. And pretty soon another week later, like, how could God always exist? Okay. But anyway, so sorry. Knowledge. And fact, what comes first? In our world, here's your timeline. Before I can know something, it has to be a fact. Like I know Tony and I got married in 1981. How can I know that? Because it happened. When will Tyler, my grandson, get born? I know Tyler's going to marry Betty Lou in, pick a safe year, uh, 2040. (laughs) I don't know that. Why don't I know that? It's not a fact. It's got to become a fact first. I can't know that on this side of time. I got to wait for it to become a fact. And then, oh, now I know. 
Does that make sense? In, in, in history, oops, 1981, in history, in history, in, our t- in, in, in reality, in time, in, in creation, you've got to have the fact happen before you can have knowledge of it. Are you with me on that? So God, if God knows uh, you're called, you're chosen, you're sealed, whatever, it's like now if you want to push the decrees, God in his foreknowledge knew something and because he knows it, it's got to happen and become a fact. You can go with that if you want to. But you could do this. God is outside of time. How does he know a fact before it happens? Because God's not here. God is up here. He sees all of time. So Tyler getting married to Betty Lou in 2040 is in my world an unknown. God, he knows. Why? Because he's not on this time scale. He's not living in time. He's outside of time. And so all of history, all of history is a fact. Does God cause all of history? Okay, now, now, okay, now here we go. God just caused everything. Well, now you get some huge questions. You know, what about evil? What about this? What about that? It's what about choice? What about free will? How about this? History is happening. We're, we can have uh, facts and then knowledge as it happens. God just knows it because it's all before him. He sees it all. He's not limited like, I can't wait to see what happens. I know what happens. Uh, so that gives God the ability to have what we can say foreknowledge of facts. And it's not that he's causing this fact. He just knows the fact because he's not in time. He knows when Tyler gets married as well as he knows that when I got married. I can only know when I got married because it's a fact. I can't know when Tyler gets married. God knows. So God is going to make Tyler get married in 2040. Did God make me get married in 1981? Well, he knew it. Knowing and causing are two different things. And in fact, in other words, if you have fact before knowledge here, you could have the same thing here. You've got to have fact before knowledge, but all the facts are there, so God has all the knowledge. Uh, again, that is not saying God doesn't cause or influence things. It just kind of gives you a little bit of breathing room that, well, he called, uh, you're, you're secure. How, how can you say he, you're secure? Because God's going to make sure, well, God knows you're secure. Uh, there's, there's some tension there that maybe relieves that. Okay, Whew. let's come back down. Okay, back down to the paper notes. Does that make sense? Interesting, is that? Now, there's, if you're a Calvinist, there you've got, really, you have the decrees. I, I got to stop. You have the decrees. A lot of people, God decreed certain things. Just like in the beginning, God spoke and the world came into existence. In the beginning, before there was, God decreed certain things were going to happen, and these things have to happen because he spoke. And again, you could have a, a sense of God decreeing certain things, and certain things he's just letting play out, like, you know, this is Jesus is going to pay for the sins of the world, just going to play out like this. And now we're in an area of why it, it's in that mystery form. I mean, we're already talking about two different time zones, uh, and, and it's like, it's, at some point, you just got to back off and say, okay, this is still beyond understanding. Nonetheless, we come back to this. 
uh, these people are called, first, they are called. They're called of God, and he's telling, in, in, in the servant songs, because of their, they're called, they are his servants. Uh, he's the Alpha and the Omega, or, the first and the last. Uh, they're secure, and even in the, in the Greek, in Jude, called is in the passive. He's called them, and they're going to respond. Yet you have a response. You can see these people uh, rejecting Jesus' offer for the kingdom, and so there's a response. So that, that's kind of where this is at. They're called. But the next is going to be that they are uh, uh, loved, and let's do this very quickly. The next word, uh, beloved, point three on page three, beloved. It, you can see the word there, agape monos, which is from the word agape or uh, agapeo. It's a passive, perfect participle. It's a passive verb. Once again, this love is God is doing it. You're not earning it. It's God's loving. Uh, and again, I'm pointing there, the, the ideal of the Hebrew is loved when it says i have loved you or you are my loved or uh faithful uh uh, uh the covenant type of love uh i'm trying to think of the word that the i just forgot it but it means uh covenant love and it's not an emotional love it's that there is some kind of a contract he's made a co- a promise Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. You, from Abraham, you'll become a great nation. Again, I, I don't want to repeat myself too much. But this Abrahamic covenant would be an unconditional covenant. He has seed Israel because they are the seed of Abraham. He's got a covenant. Now, the Mosaic covenant was a conditional covenant. It would have the word if in it. If you will do these things, then you will be my people. If you do not do these things, I'm going to send you into captivity. You're done. You're no longer going to be a nation. So they failed the Mosaic Covenant, which they're destined to. In fact, we saw that last week. It, 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 even does say, it doesn't say, in the Hebrew, it doesn't say if. It says, you will forsake the covenant. It, it doesn't say, if you will. It's like, you will, and you will go into captivity. Because there's no if, because you will. And so to be under the covenant of Moses, you're already under a curse. You're not going to make it. But why is Israel still, they failed this. They, they failed this. God has every right to just smoke them. Except they're the seed of Abraham. They've got an unconditional covenant. He then says, because of, a, because of the Mosaic covenant, you're going to captivity. But because of the Abrahamic covenant, I've got to bring you back because I have loved you. Now, he doesn't love them in the sense of, I am emotionally connected. I, I can't speak to that. But I'm not going to go get, oh, I feel sorry for these people. You know, oh, I, I'm emotionally connected. I've got to go get them because I've loved them with a covenant, a steadfast love. That's what I'm looking for. Steadfast love. It's a covenant love. I've got a contract with these people. They make me mad. They don't obey me. They can't. I've got to bring them back. In fact, I've got to bring them back and send a Savior to pay for all their sins so I can have another covenant. And Jesus then says, I'm going to give you the new covenant. It's not going to be a covenant like I had before where I took you by the hand and led you out by the flesh. I'm going to write my laws on your heart. I'm going to give you a new heart. This is Jeremiah 31, 31, uh, a new covenant. And this is the love we're talking about here. He has loved them with this new covenant, which is in Christ, because Christ, you have entered in to the new covenant. <clears throat> You've been called not to join Israel. 
You've been called to receive the Savior that comes through Israel who came and sealed the new covenant with his blood, the, you know, the, the bread and the wine. This is the, uh, the, the, uh, the cup of the new covenant. And now once you enter that, you're in the same position. You're in this Hasid covenant. And this is where I have total uh, uh, security or eternal security is once you've entered this new covenant, you've been called, you've entered the new covenant, what, you're going to get out of that? You've been born again. You've entered the new covenant. You are now in this seed covenant. You may be disobedient and deserve being sent to Babylon, but if he does, God's going to come back and get you the good work he began. He's going to finish it. Uh, it may be a long road, and, and that in the book of Judas may be telling me, it's like, don't go this way because it's going to be a long road back. Or if you haven't really entered this covenant, you're just on the surface, you're going to prove that you never were in this new covenant. But this is the word love. Uh, I think it's more than just emotional connection. In the Old Testament, love was the steadfast love of a covenant. This covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, has been fulfilled with the new covenant that Jesus brought about. And so these people are loved by the Father. And that love by the Father is a covenant that he started he promised it in the Garden of Eden, the seed of the woman, called Abraham, goes through all of this history, and finally Jesus fulfills it and allows the Father, for God so loved the world. Now, does that mean the whole world gets saved? But he loved the world. He wanted, he wanted to do something, give them a covenant. He gave his only son so he could love them. Now, they've got to respond to it. And when they respond, now the word kept, and we're, we're about done here. Yes, we are. Point four. You see the Greek word there, it means having been kept, meaning having been kept. It's not like they're, he's keeping them, it's that they're having been kept. It means to watch over, to guard. And this word kept in the 25 verses that we've got of Jude, this word is used five times in 25 verses. In verse 1, verse 6, two times, verse 13, verse 21, is the word kept, talking about the saints being kept, or the saints being guarded. And they're being guarded right here. Uh, it's a passive verb again. They're not doing anything. It's just it's being done to them. Jude's confidence is in God's call, love, and guarding of the saints. And it is Jesus Christ who is doing the guarding. So somewhere in the past, they were called. They entered into a covenant that the Father now loves them and has put them in the care of Christ who saved them. And Christ is guarding them. So this opening verse for these people, wherever they're at, I think they're in Israel, uh, I think maybe, you know, in, in the local churches in Judea, we're not sure. But whoever they are, they are called from the past. They're loved in a covenant now, and they're being kept for the future by possibly the Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Son. These people are secure, and they should be confident. They should be bold. Now, the problem is you've been entrusted. The next verse is the issue for you is you've been entrusted with something. And you're letting it go. You're letting these people come in and teach you something different that gives them and you a license to not conform into the image of Christ, but gives you a license to just continue to live your life just as you are. It's basically the gospel, come accept Jesus Christ as you are. You don't need to change. He loves you just like you are. He loves all people. Go your way. 
I said, come, you need to change. You need to get out of this age. You need to be conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. And now that you're saved, we're going to study this salvation. What is God conforming you to? It's, a, it's not a legalistic bondage. God's conforming to this, this slave. He's conforming you into the image of his son. Jude wants to talk about this great salvation. You've come, let's find out where we're going. You, you want to go this way. But instead... The false just come in and say, oh, don't look at that. This is what it really means. You can go back into darkness and enjoy the darkness. And it's like, no, no, no. You've got to contend for this faith. This is, this is where we're going. And that is the issue of are they going to lose it? Yes or no. But definitely, definitely the church could lose this, or at least parts of the church could lose this truth because the false teachers come in and lead many people astray. And they think, they think they're saved, but all they've done is accept, like, what did you say last week? That was easy grace, was it? Oh, yeah, cheap grace. Cheap grace. You just, oh, yeah, I, I accept God. Do you believe in God? See, a lot of times people think, do you believe in God? Yeah, I think there's a God. Oh, good, you're going to heaven. It's like, well, no, you know, Satan believes there's a God. Demons believe there's a God. Uh, it's uh, obvious there's a God. The problem is you need to accept this call, this transformation, this spirit, and become you're going to be conformed you need to you need to turn your life to god not just say i think he's there uh again now we're on another subject and i've got to quit i appreciate you being here no church next week we'll pick this up following that and hopefully make some sense of it some more father do thank you for the chance to look into these things we ask that we would trust our security that we have in you that we would trust jesus christ we do thank you for calling us and giving us the spirit giving us the word giving us this salvation but father we also ask that we would be strong contenders that we'd be uh, trained that we'd be able that we'd be willing to contend for the faith and be able to defend it in a proper way academically spiritually socially that can communicate to other people the truth of the word of jesus christ and the and the coming of his kingdom again we do thank you for this opportunity and look forward to continued growth in jesus name we pray amen thank you for being here thank you for your time